All right. Transformation. This is what we're talking about in this series. And I believe that at this point, we are all able to say, if I ask you, um, is transformation possible? You all say, okay, I'll try again. <laughs> so at this point in our journey, if I ask you, is transformation possible? You're going to say, yes. yes, it is. Well done. So, but we also saw last week that transformation um, does not happen overnight, right? It takes time. So even if you're in, in my, thank you very much, Anthony. If our, I thought that only pastors got water, but no. <laughs> even if our transformation, our uh, conversion experience was something very dramatic, and we could really like pinpoint the exact day that we started calling Jesus our Savior, even that's true. If even if that's true, I I would say that the changes in our character did not happen next morning, right? So even if your experience was very dramatic, if you remember very clearly about your conversion, character didn't change overnight. And we we also saw last week that these changes in character that they don't happen under our control. They're not under our control only. Just like farmers, we sow the seeds, we work the soil, we wait for the rain, and we just wait for the plants to grow. You see, there is work to be done, but the power of transformation is not in the work itself. The power of transformation is with the one who makes the plants grow. The power of transformation is with the one who makes the plants grow. All right, having said that, knowing that, our job in the next few weeks is to find out what's the farmer's work that we have to do. What are the things that we should do in order to sow the seeds and work the soil and wait for the rain in our own hearts so Jesus can, can bring the transformation that we are seeking. This is our job for the next few weeks. And today, more specifically, we're going to look at worship, how, how worship transforms us. How does the discipline of worship prepare the soil of our hearts for the transformation that Jesus wants to bring about. We're going to look for this answer in Psalm 28, as we read. But before we go to the psalm, I wanted you to consider the following phrase by Augustine. There, yeah. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. What is he saying here? What does it mean to be carried by love? Well, he's saying that essentially, we human beings, we're lovers. That every single movement we make is motivated first by love. 
He's saying that we are always moving and that we move because we all see and have a picture of a good, what a good life looks like. So it's just like, like gravity. The things we love attract us and we move. We see something that can be part of, a good, of our picture of a good life and then we move towards it. It's more or less like this. Sorry, Paul. This is you. This is you and your love. And the ground is the things you love. Just like that. Naturally attracted to the ground. Naturally attracted to the things you love. This is how we work. Next one. You see? This is us. So in other words, uh, he's saying here that our desires, the things we want, are at the very center of who we are. They are the ver very core of our identity. And that our actions, our behaviors are just flowing from our desires. We do things because of the things we love. We do things because of the things we love. Think about it. How do we choose the songs we listen to? How do we choose the books that we want to read? How do we choose a sports team that we want to support? We don't listen to the 21 pilots just because we think that they are good. If you don't know who the 21 pilots are, ask your children. <laughs> we, don't, we don't read the Chronicles of Narnia because we think it's the best book ever. Unless you're a region and people keep telling you what to do and then you read it. And we, we don't um, support the Canucks because we think they're the best. <laughs> right? It doesn't make sense. There has to be something to do with love. It has to, it has to do with love. So for some reason, these things are just attractive to us. Something about them sp speak very deeply in our hearts. But you see, all these things happen without us thinking about them. It is very much like a, an autopilot, right? Love is an auto, autopilot. It drives us to places, and we don't even think about them. So this type of love that we are talking about here today, it's not just a, a feeling. It's not a beautiful word only. It's not even a decision we make. No. This type of love that we're talking about here is a habit. We make these choices without thinking because we are so used to them that it becomes like a second nature. It comes without thinking. Now, if love is a habit, that means we can practice love. And putting all this together, if we are here today talking about the work we have to do in your hearts 
So Jesus can bring transformation about. And we are saying that we move towards the things we love and that love is a habit. All this together means that discipleship or to become more like Jesus is actually a recalibration of our hearts towards God. Discipleship is the recalibration of our heart towards God. It's resetting, recalculating, reorienting our hearts towards God. What I'm saying is that the work you have to do in your hearts is more about desiring and longing and wanting than knowing and believing. It's more in here than in here. And that may be the case why it's so hard, so hard to practice the things we learn. Because knowing and believing is not enough. We need to recalibrate our hearts. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is a wonderful word for a Sunday morning. You know, all beautiful words. That makes sense. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we recalibrate our hearts towards God? How do we reset? How do we recalculate? Well, I would say that it's very much like learning how to play an instrument. We imitate and we practice. Imitation and practice. This is how we do. So we imitate those who are good examples of people who are following the right direction. And we repeat it over and over and again. We just do what they're doing and we keep doing it. So, and what, what, what does worship have to do with all this? Well, worship is one of those disciplines that recalibrate our hearts towards God. So today we are going to do this. We are going to imitate and practice. We are going to imitate David. We are going to use his words as if they were our words. We're going to see how David is recalibrating his heart in the psalm and what happens when he does it. So let's take a look at Psalm 28 together. You all have um, a slip of paper in your bulletins. But I'm going to offer you uh, an alternative reading. Um, I'll just put some Latin American drama here, okay? <clears throat> so let's read the first two verses. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a uh, deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call you for help. As I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. This is David. What do you hear here? What, what, what do you see here? 
David is desperate. He's crying for help. He's crying for deliverance. And, and he's using pretty dramatic language here. The pit that he mentions is like um, a deep, 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 deep hole on the ground. More or less like a, a well without water. That you would put your enemies there to make them, them suffer. This is the language that he's choosing to use here. Do you remember Joseph's story when he was sold by his brothers in the pit? That was, that was what we're talking about here. That, that's what we're talking about here. So David is just describing his, uh, his feelings as if, as if he's like down, down, down. People who go down to the pit experience a kind of social death. They're, they're isolated for, from, from family and friends. They have no control over their lives. And this is the language that David chooses to make his case with God. He's saying, if you don't listen, I'll be in a very bad place. I'll be as good as dead. That's what he's saying here. My question is, have you ever felt that way? Could you use David's words to say, well, these are my words as well. I could. And it's beautiful because poets like David have this wonderful gift to bring such a, an internal struggle into a very concrete and visible image like the pet. So, and now, how does David look for God? He, he cries out. He lifts his hands towards the sanctuary. He cries out and he lifts his hand toward the sanctuary. In our words, he's praying and coming to church. That's what he's doing. Praying and coming to church. So he's offering his prayer and he's coming to the sanctuary. That's what he's doing here. You see, in his despair and profound sadness, David is trying to recalibrate his heart. He's doing what his people did. He's crying out to the God of his fathers. And he keeps praying because he knows that God is a rock. He persists in prayer, just imitating and practicing. Because he wants to keep moving towards God, so he imitates and practices. But why is this persistence in prayer required? Why do we pray? Why do we have to pray all the time? Why? Well, we persist in prayer not because by praying a lot, we will move God's hands to do with the things that we want him to do. That's not the case. We, we keep in prayer, we persist in prayer because the, God's answers do not come all at once. It's not our timing. So in order for us to keep up going, in order for us to keep our spirits going, in order for us to, to, to keep moving, we need to keep praying because we know that his answers are, come, are going to come eventually. This is why we pray. 
This is why we need to persist in prayer. And David knows that. David knows that God is a rock and he can trust God. He's recalibrating his heart by offering his prayer to God. Reminding himself that God is a rock. And every time we do the same, we also become more like Jesus. And you, you're going to agree with me. There's no one better to imitate than Jesus himself. And if you remember, Jesus will pray constantly, asking for direction and presenting his pleas to the Father. All over and over and again, recalibrating, recalculating, reorienting himself towards God. Now, let's, let's take a look at the second part of the, of the psalm, verses 3 to 5. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done. And bring back on them what they deserve. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. I must confess that the first time I saw this psalm, I was just like, Really, Andy, is that what you want me to preach on? Like, <laughs> worship and killing your enemies? I was just like, okay. But what do you see here? Does he sound angry to you? He does to me. But actually what I see is like he's disoriented. You see, he, he was looking at God and just like saying, well, you're my rock. I trust you and everything. And now he looks around and he sees all these people who... Do not regard who God is. So in the process of recalibration of his heart, he looks around and sees these people, the wicked. And then he asks God to repay them, to destroy them. But just in terms of context, retribution is something that's very common in the Bible, especially in texts that you have, uh, you're trying to communicate some kind of wisdom, Right? Think about Proverbs, for example. You have this kind of retribution all the time. And the thing is, like, the logic behind it is, if we have a good God who created the world, so there must be a way of living that is aligned with this, this way that God created the world. So everyone or anyone who does not follow this way should pay, should be punished. And this is the language that David's using here. They don't understand how the world works and how you, God, works. So repay them. They're working really hard to do evil. So give them what they need or they're looking for in a way. But one interesting thing about this part is who are the wicked? Did you notice that? Who are the wicked? They're not, they're not murderers or, or thieves or, or criminals in the, in the legal sense of the word. 
The wicked here are those who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. They're the, the two-faced ones. People who say something that is not in their hearts. It is this double life. These are the wicked. These are the ones who don't understand how God works or how the world works. And these are the ones who David is calling wicked. David knows that God is interested in our hearts. That what we do externally is important, of course, but that God sees the heart. So if we are saying things that do not correspond or are not aligned to the, what our hearts say, we are the wicked here. Remember Jesus when, when he, he would interact with the Pharisees. The main critique of Jesus is that the Pharisees knew everything about the law, but they were not open to have their hearts transformed. They knew all the right words to say, but in their hearts, they were just trying to make Jesus fail all the time. They were not open. So these are the wicked we're talking about here. People who have double standards. So in this process of recalibrating our hearts through the worship we offer to God, either in prayer or in songs or our daily work, we need to be 100% honest with God. He gave himself to us, and this is the kind of God we serve. He became one of us. He's fully committed. He became one of us. So what do we do? We give ourselves to him as well, fully committed. This is what we do. And David knows that. That for him to, to recalibrate his heart, he needs to be 100% honest with God and the other people that, see, that he sees in everything he does. No double standards anymore. So now let's, let's just move on. Let's read the, the last part of the psalm. We're going to see the change now. Praise be to, Lord, to the Lord. For he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Carry them forever. So what do you see here? What do you see here? Well, what I see is a finally recalibrated heart. He's back. He's going home again. After crying out, after looking around at his enemies, David, 
is finally able to sing again. When he says, he says, my heart trusts in him and he helps me. The translation would be more or less like, I trusted you not only once, but many, many, many times in my life. And I still see the effects of that trust every day in my life. I trusted you once and I kept trusting you and I still see the effects of that. It's continuous. And even when we are not aware of his protection, he is there. Even when we're not aware of his protection, he's there. Now, you might not be feeling that way right now, and that's fine. But it may be the case that you have what we call the survivorship bias. Okay? Geeky part of the sermon now. Just explaining to you what the survivorship bias is. I'll tell you a story. Okay? In the Second Great War, the military would study the planes that will come back from battle. Right? And they will look for the damage in the planes. And they would see, well, where did they get shot so we can just put more armor or protect better that place, right? So let's say I'm a, I'm a plane right now, right? And let's say that uh, the wings are, are the most damaged part, right? So they would look, and the body was okay, but the wings were shot many, many times. So they would say, okay, let's put more protection here, right? Let's protect this. And they were doing this like over and over again. But then a very smart guy, a statistician, just saying, he came and said, oh, oh hold on, guys, hold on. This is, not, this is not correct. Because if we're looking at the planes that came back home and they were shot in, in their wings, but they were able to, to make home, that means that shooting the wings is not a problem. What about the planes that were shot like in other places and did not come back? Right? So if a plane comes back with its body not shot, that means very likely that the ones who got shot in the body are still there. What was the problem here? They were not looking for the big picture. They were just looking at the shots in the wing. On the wing, at the wing, I never know. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so the thing is, like, we, 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 might, we might not have the whole picture. And we need to recalibrate our hearts so we can see the whole picture. So even if we're feeling that we're not in a good spot, Space right now, the simple fact that we are here together now at this very moment might be pointing to the fact that God is protecting you and guiding you and feeding you. Survivorship bias. 
we need to recalibrate our hearts to see the big picture. Now, just going back to our psalm, um, note, note how, how the focus changes. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. I praise him. He's the strength of his people. So David realizes here that God's protection is not only for him, but for his people, for the whole people of God. He moves from the individual to the community, and this is what we're doing here today. Worship's done in community too, just like us today. We're all recalibrating our hearts together. And then we see at the very last part of the psalm, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is probably my favorite illustration of the whole Bible. The shepherd. I simply, I just love the idea that God guides, protects, and feeds us. I just, I just, I just love it. And then we are all sheep. And I've heard... I'm, I'm sure you heard this before as well, that sheep can be very reckless, right? And they get in trouble very easily because they're reckless. I can totally relate to that. I can totally relate to that. But when my heart is recalibrated, I can see the shepherd again. I see myself as a sheep who needs help, but I can trust with all I have in me. That the good shepherd is guiding, protecting, and feeding me. As a shepherd himself, David kind of uses his profession or occupation to, to describe his relationship with God. You remember Psalm 23? Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He guides me. He protects me. He feeds me. Guides me, protects me, and feeds me. Recalibrating. So, my brothers and sisters, this is how the discipline of worship transforms us. We are moved by our desires, and worship recalibrates our hearts towards God. By imitating and practicing, over and over and over again. By bringing our hearts to God in prayer. By retelling ourselves the same stories. By affirming God's character in our songs. We slowly reorient our hearts to God himself and his kingdom. So my suggestion for us this week is that we would... Um, Take this psalm that you have in your, in your bulletin. And that we, we, we can pray it as if David's words were our words during the week. You can choose another psalm as well, but, you know, you have this one now. But by imitating and practicing, you don't have to have all the words. We have words already. You can use them. 
Make them your words. Make them your words. And that's a good way of recalibrating our hearts. Imitating David and keeping practicing. Keep practicing. Our hearts are going to be recalibrated and we will be transformed in people that want what God wants. We're going to be transformed in people that hunger and thirst after him. People who crave a world in which God himself is all in all. Amen.